to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now who could ever have imagined water in the wilderness and streams in the desert? The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Did you notice that in verse 13 of the previous chapter? She will become a haunt for jackals. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. Now, you don't find highways in the desert, but a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Well, as I say, you could not possibly find a greater contrast between any two chapters of Scripture than there are between these two chapters, 34 and 35 of Isaiah. Chapter 34 is the account of a fertile, productive land turned into a desert by the judgment of God. That's clearly what Isaiah is telling us. Chapter 35 is the account of a desert turned into a beautiful, fruitful, productive garden by the salvation of God. So here the contrast is between the judgment of God and the salvation of God, between the result of a life that is lived trusting in the flesh and a life that is lived Trusting in the Lord. But the one chapter sets before us the sovereign activity of God in judgment and destruction. And the other, the sovereign activity of the same God in salvation and recreation. Now, there is no doubt that these chapters do have a reference as many people have suggested because of the last verse that we read in chapter 35, to the return of God's people from exile. 
Isaiah has been warning them again and again and again about the danger, the peril, the destruction that was going to lie in the pathway of Judah if they continually refused to listen to the Lord and put their confidence in the wisdom of men in alliances with powers they thought would deliver them. And again and again he warns them of this. And the exile which came when the people of Judah were taken off into Babylon, that was the great evidence that God meant what he said. That his words were not idle words. That when he uttered promises, he meant them. And when he uttered threats, he really meant what he was saying. And Isaiah looks forward to that day, of course. Now, here, as many people have suggested, you get a hint of how the exiled people of God who sat down by the rivers of Babylon and wept when they remembered Zion were brought back to Zion again. Notice in verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads and so on. Undoubtedly, there may well be a reference to the return of God's people from exile there. And that's the great theme, the salvation of God from chapter 40 onwards. But there is no question either that what we were speaking about last time applies here to Isaiah, that he is not just looking to his own generation as the prophet speaking into contemporary society, nor is he just looking to the future in the middle distance, as it were, to such times as the exile and the return he is looking to the ultimate horizons and to the day when God will come finally in Jesus Christ in salvation and in judgment. Now this is the important point, you see, of these two chapters. That the God who comes in the end of the age in Jesus Christ comes as a God who is gr whose great concern is to appear before us as the Savior. But he comes not only as a Savior, he comes to those who have persisted in rebellion against him in judgment. Now the great example of the persistent rebellious people in Isaiah are Edom. And that's why you get this 34th chapter addressed specifically to Edom. You will know that the nation called Edom were descendants of Esau. And the nation of Edom is a nation that persistently harasses the people of God and rebels against the Lord. And so they are not just a geographical people, they are a representative people. They are a people who stand for those who have persisted in rebelling against the Lord. But these chapters have this, this final note of the final judgment and the final salvation that God is promising his people. And we need to look uh, at them. It's uh, an impertinence to Isaiah as well as a strain on you to look at 
two chapters in one evening, isn't it? But I think it's better for us to do that rather than to separate them from each other. Here then is God in judgment and in salvation, and the two are held alongside each other. We need to do that as well, of course, to see that salvation and judgment come from the same God. Chapter 34, then, the sovereignty of God displayed in judgment. And this judgment is not just the disciplining of the nations temporarily. It is also a note, and frequently you get this note, it is the final judgment of God, which is spoken of not only here, but uh, shadows of this in the book of Revelation as well. Well, you notice in the introduction in verses 1 to 4, there are three characteristics of this judgment that God summons the nations to pay attention and hear and listen to him. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. And the first mark of this judgment is that it is universal. It's universal in the sense that it stretches out over all mankind. It is not just a judgment of one corner of the world or of his own people, because God is not just the God of a particular tribe or nation. He is the God of the whole earth. And so he summons the nations, the peoples, the earth, the world in verse 1. Come near you nations and listen. Pay attention you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. Because God is revealing himself now in judgment in a universal sense stretching throughout the whole world. But it's universal not only in that it encompasses all nations, but it encompasses every area of the universe. Look at verse 4. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. The sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Now that's something that you read about if you turn over to Revelation chapter 6, the very last book in the Bible. You'll see that in Revelation, that very phrase from Isaiah is used in Revelation 6 at verse 13. Where in the day of the last judgment, as the sixth seal was opened, uh, John says, The stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, 
what Isaiah is speaking about is a judgment that has cosmic dimensions to it. It is not only going to affect the earth, it is going to affect the heavens. And clearly John has uh, Isaiah's figure of speech in mind. So this judgment is universal. Do you notice in the second place it is personal? Because at length the outcome of all God's warning and of the persistent rebelliousness and sin of those who have set themselves against, themselves against him is that the Lord is angry, verse 2, with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Now, it's an important thing for us to grasp, you see, that when we listen to the Scripture speaking to us about the day of God's judgment, it is not speaking merely about an impersonal catastrophe. It is speaking about a personal activity of God. And indeed it begins with the Lord being angry. Now, if you are like me, you will not at all like the idea of God being angry. That's something that we shrink from. The doctrine of the wrath of God in Scripture is not a doctrine that any of us would gladly embrace and say this is the kind of thing we love to hear. But it is true nonetheless that Scripture never appears to find difficulty in putting alongside each other in the character of the same God revealed in Jesus Christ, both tender love and mercy beyond our fathoming, and wrath and anger with sin beyond our measuring. Isn't it an amazing thing, for example, that in the book of Revelation, when the last book in the Bible is speaking to us about the anger of God against sin, it uses this amazing combination and speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. Now, there could scarcely be a greater contradiction, you would think, than this picture of God in His fiery judgment, going out against the nations, judging the whole earth. He is angry, Isaiah says, with all the nations. And yet this wrath in the book of Revelation is described as the wrath of the Lamb. And it holds these two together. There is a sense, you see, in which the very intensity of the love of God has its other side in the intensity of his anger against sin. And these two things, if we are going to be biblical, and if we are going to be faithful to the revelation of the God who is revealed here in Scripture, we need to hold side by side. This is a personal judgment of God. And we dare not get away from the difficulty 
by simply saying, well, you know what happens if you put your hand into the fire, you get it burned. It's a law of action and reaction. It's just the reaction of fire to burn. This is a personal judgment. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. And that's not just kind of wild Old Testament teaching, you know. There is nobody who spoke about this more fiercely than Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in ungodliness. Now that's something which we need to recognize that here is a God who is both infinitely tender in his love and infinitely terrible in his anger against sin. So it's universal, it is personal. You notice also it is total. Uh, this is not a temporary discipline that we read of God uh, handing out to the nations as though he was disciplining them in order to uh, win them to himself. What Isaiah is speaking to us here about is the outcome of sin in the judgment of God is a total judgment. Verse 2, the Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. And then you get this gruesome description in verse 3 of how total is the judgment of God. So it's not a temporary discipline that he is speaking about. It is a total destruction. Now, that's the characteristic of this judgment of God revealed to us in the introduction in verses 1 to 4. But from verse 5, Isaiah turns from the universal judgment specifically to Edom. And from verse 5, you get Edom referred to several times over. As I was saying, a nation and a people who rebelled against God and therefore became a symbol of rebellion and godlessness in general. It's an interesting thing if you turn back to Psalm 137, to that psalm about the people of God by the rivers of Babylon, where there are spectators when Jerusalem is being destroyed. Uh, on the day that Jerusalem fell. You ever notice this in Psalm 137 verse 7? The psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Now here is a people utterly set against God, you see. 
And when they saw the enemy come in and begin to destroy Jerusalem, they are crying out. You could almost imagine the picture. They are dancing round about Jerusalem, calling out to the enemies of Zion, tear it down, raise it to the foundations, they are saying. And the psalmist says, remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Now, God is saying, this is the destiny of all who live as they do. Now, let me just mention to you, there are at least two things we learn about God's judgment as he particularizes it in application to Edom. My sword, verse 5, has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. The end of verse 6, the Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra and a great slaughter in Edom. The beginning of verse 9, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch. Halfway through verse 11, God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Let me just point out two things to you about uh, this judgment of which Edom is the great uh, symbol. The judgment is, first of all, a day of vindication. You notice in verse 8, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Now, what God is doing on this great and awesome day of final judgment, you see, is he is upholding the cause of Zion. He is vindicating his own people. He is declaring that all that he has said is true, and he is vindicating the position of those who have trusted him, even when Everything appeared to be going against them and the wicked were prospering and evil men were getting off without any kind of punishment which God had said they would experience. Now on this final day, it is a day of vindication for God, you see. Because of course you realize what happens if there is no judgment like this. The reason that the judgment is inevitable is that God's character is going to crumble if this judgment does not take place. His integrity is at stake, you see. Just as would be the case at a much lower level if you go into the high court in Glasgow and it is reputed that crime brings judgment upon it and a pronouncement of guilt and the production of a sentence. But if the judge came to some person who had committed a heinous crime, and despite all the law of the land, and despite everything the person had been told, and despite the fabric on which society had been built, and the oath that the judge had taken, he suddenly said, well, it doesn't matter. I met a judge just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I remember, in hospital. He was visiting somebody, and so was I. And 
You know, if somebody like that got up and said, but it doesn't matter, boys. We'll, I'm in a particularly benevolent mood today. And we'll forget all about this crime. It doesn't really matter. And uh, although this man has murdered and assaulted and killed and wounded and maimed and destroyed, it doesn't matter. We'll forget about it. And hope that he improves. Now, the whole of society would rise up, of course, and say, but it does matter. And that judge's integrity is immediately brought into question. And the whole issue of the righteousness of the law of the land and of the fabric of society is in question. Now you see, the whole question of God's character is raised in this issue of judgment. The whole fabric of the universe that he created and the moral law which he gave, that is raised in question in this whole realm. God vindicates himself in judgment. That, you see, my dear friends, is why when we move over into this other realm of salvation, there is no place where God vindicated himself in judgment more awesomely than in the death of Jesus. And you remember why Paul says he laid our sins on him? It was that God might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And because of that, he poured out his wrath upon Christ. That's the point. Now, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. You notice just a little bit before that, we read at the end of verse 6, For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in Egypt. There are many scholars who believe that what Isaiah is speaking to us about there is this, that there is a sacrifice that has to be paid for sin. There is a price that sin exacts, in other words. Now, I, I can still remember as a a youngster, not long converted, hearing someone tell a, a rather ridiculous story about somebody who had um, broken a window and his friend and he were uh, aware of this fierce colonel-like figure who came out of the house and they ran down the road and he called after them, somebody will have to pay. Somebody will have to pay for this. And they ran home. They were brothers and ran home to their house and later heard this knock on the door and they decided that if they had to go to prison, they would go together. And they were trembling, listening for who this was at the door. It was the neighbor, of course. And their father said he would pay the price for them. I remember how that penetrated my mind as a youngster. Somebody has to pay. You know, that's always true of sin. 
There is a sacrifice that has to be paid for sin. And either we pay it ourselves, or Jesus pays it in our place. But there is a price that has to be paid for sin. And God's judgment is a vindication. He is upholding Zion's cause. And you will notice that it is uh, the day of God's vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. A very interesting thing to me, although we mustn't uh, stay on it, that uh, God's judgment is described as retribution. That's an unpopular word in modern society because all punishment nowadays that would be acceptable in modern society has to be either punishment which is reformative. That is, it reforms the person who has committed the crime. Or it has to be preventative. That is, it will keep other people from doing it. So in the first place, we are saying to people, take that and don't ever do it again. In the other case, we are saying to them, take that and let it be a warning to other people never to do it again. But that's not the biblical view of punishment. The biblical view of punishment is that there is a just reward for transgression. And that is what God meets out in his judgment. It is the day of vengeance and a year of retribution. The other thing that you notice here from verse 9 onwards is that it is destruction. The judgment of God is destruction. Notice how Edom's streams are going to be turned in verse 9 into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land is going to become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched day and night, its smoke will rise forever. It is going to be a case of Edom's fruitful land turned into a desert. And you notice how the animals and birds of the desert are going to be the inhabitants of this place. Verse 11 onwards really describes that to us. Verse 14, desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. Um, the terrible thing is that there is in this judgment of God the kind of destruction which is really loss you know, that's one of the great notes of the judgment of God in Scripture, that it is loss of an eternal sort. That's what makes it so solemn. Verse 12, for example, her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. And in the desert... It is going to be the desert creatures, jackals and so on, which are going to overrun the land. And there will be this dreadful sense of loss. 
does seem to me that one of the things that Isaiah is saying in verse 10 is that this loss will be of an eternal sort. Verse 10, it will not be quenched night and day. Smoke will rise forever from generation to generation. It will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. So there is this awful picture of the destruction and loss that comes with the judgment of God. Now when you move into chapter 35, you get the reverse. This remarkable picture of the turning of a wilderness into a garden. Which of course is one of the things that many people who have visited Israel would tell you has happened in the land of Israel today. There are areas where quite literally the desert is rejoicing and blossoming like the crocus or the rose. That there is a transformation that has taken place in a physical sense in the land. Uh, but the significant thing is that this also is a picture of God turning a wilderness into a garden. Now, more immediately, it may be that the picture is of Judah laid waste by the Assyrians, destroyed by their enemies, and this wilderness, desert land, God is going to restore. And here, the same God who judges those who are living in persistent rebellion against him and will not hear his voice, the same God comes to bring the glories of his salvation to transform just as dramatically as this previous transformation. But you notice that it is the same day and the same God of which we are speaking. Verse 3, he comes to cry out to those who are conscious of their weakness and of their frailty, and Christ strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Now, of course, that's precisely what the people of God were tempted to doubt. Would God ever come? They had held on in days when the skies were darkened, when they could not see any sign of God working in the land, or in their own lives, or in the world around them. Like the psalmist in Psalm 73, all they could see was that the wicked appeared to prosper, and the godly appeared to suffer. And Isaiah is saying to them, Hold on, he says, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Now, how will he come? Well, he will come with vengeance with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Do you see how the same God is the God who reveals himself in judgment on the one hand and in salvation on the other? Now, to describe this transformation, Isaiah uses illustrations from the world of nature in verses 1 and 2 and from human experience in verses 5 and 6. 
Notice in verses 1 and 2, it's like the desert rejoicing, the wilderness blossoming. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. So this place that appears so miserably parched and barren is going to burst out into blossom and into rejoicing. But the other thing is that in verses 5 and 6, more personally, he turns to the world of nature and says that the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute are going to experience the same transformation. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Then in the wilderness, water is going to gush forth. The burning sand will become like a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs, and grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, which they would do only where there was water and irrigation. And so there is this amazing picture of a complete reversal, the opposite transformation, not now from a fertile land into a desert, but from a total wilderness into a glorious garden where the healing streams of God's grace are to be experienced. Now let me just point out to you that this place, this garden that God has made out of the wilderness will be dominated by three things. And this is not only a picture of salvation, it is also a picture of glory. It will be dominated first by the glory of God in verse 2. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. That is the glory of these places that are famed for their fruitfulness, for their trees and for their growth. But the thing that is going to dominate is the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. That's going to be the great mark of this day of salvation. We will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Second thing that will dominate it is the holiness of his people. Look at verse 8. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. The dominant thing about those who dwell in this land is that they will have become the kind of people God has been seeking to make them all down through the ages. That is, his concern and desire is to produce for himself a holy people. And in this glory that God is leading us ultimately to, the place will be dominated by the glory of the Lord and by the holiness of, the, of his people. They will have been made a people reflecting his holiness. And the third thing that will dominate it is the wonders of redemption. Notice the end of verse 9. Only the redeemed will walk there. 
and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, clearly that has some reference back to Babylon. And the sorrowing and the sighing as they sat down by the rivers of Babylon and wept and were faced with the result of their sin. But on this day of redemption, And it is, of course, a reference to redemption that we experience here and now. But ultimately, of course, the place where we will know it fully is in heaven in the presence of the Lord. And there the glories of redeeming grace will be the great preoccupation of this holy people. The ransomed of the Lord will return and enter Zion singing, Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. What a glorious picture it is. And what a glorious thing to know that that is what God is beginning here and now in us. He is turning wildernesses into gardens. He is taking a people and molding and fashioning them so that their eyes may behold more and more of his glory and the reflection of it will be seen in their lives so that they will be more and more absorbed by the glories of redeeming grace that when they get into heaven it may be in a sense a short step for them. Because there they will find that the things that increasingly preoccupied them here are the things that fill that heavenly world. Here is Isaiah's vision. And he means us to grasp it and to recognize when our hands hang down and we are conscious of our own weakness and weariness. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we bow before your awesome majesty, before the fearsomeness of your judgments and the wonders of your redeeming grace. O God, we acknowledge that your patience in the world and your long-suffering is because judgment is your strange work and you long to be gracious. Hear us as we ask that you will so work in our lives that we may find ourselves more and more preoccupied with these things that belong to the world of heavenly glory here portrayed to us so that in the day when we see you in all your splendor we may know the wonders of redeeming grace in all their fullness bless us as we commend one another to you this evening grant that your grace and peace may abide with us now and forevermore. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, 
a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.